morning, Christchurch. This is Malachi 1, 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Let's pray before we jump into this one. We pray all the time, but it seems more necessary today. Stay. All right. Father God, we praise you this morning that your wisdom and glory and power are beyond comprehension. God, that you are not a God whose fullness can be contained in books or explained by the human mind. And yet, you chose to reveal uh, so much to us in your word. God, you let us approach your word to see you. God, let us come to it with thanksgiving and humility. When we come to hard or confusing, confusing things like today, God, let us rejoice in the fact that you sent Jesus so that one day all things will be made clear in your glorious presence. God, we thank you for your goodness and your love uh, and your word, and we just ask that you would be with us this morning as we jump into your scripture. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Ah, so if you weren't here last week, we kicked off our series in the book of Malachi with Genuine Love Part 1, this is Genuine Love Part 2. If you only hear this one, you might say, that's the worst sermon on love I've ever heard. So, if you didn't hear last week, please go back and listen or read. I send the notes out. Um, but with that said, we read the same text last week, and everyone's like, oh, we didn't get to the part we all really want to talk about. So we'll get there today. But as we talked about last week, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's God's final word to his people before 400 years of silence. No prophecy, no revelations, just silence until the coming of the Messiah when we get to the book of Matthew. And this man, Malachi, was a prophet in Israel after they had returned from 70 years of exile in Babylon. So Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the temple had been restored, but as much as we like to think that changing our location or changing our circumstances is going to fix our problems, it rarely does. Because the unfortunate reality is that our problems typically stem more from our hearts than they do from our circumstances. I mean, how many times do you think the Israelites said, God, if we would just be released from exile, everything would be better. We will praise and worship you. 
and then they were. Then if we could just live in our city again, everything would be better. We would be a content people. Then they were. God, if we could just worship in our own temple again, then we would be content. Then we would love you. But as each successive step came to fruition, there was still a problem. They kept getting exactly what they desired, but their hearts were still messed up. They had grown skeptical about God's love, careless about worship, indifferent about the truth disobedient to the covenant, faithless in their marriages, and stingy in their offerings. They were going through the religious motions, but their hearts were far from God. So God speaks to this rebellious, apathetic people through the prophet Malachi. As we talked about last week, God surprisingly begins with this proclamation of his love. He says, I have loved you, And as we talked about, it's not just I used to, it's I have loved you and I do love you. I have always loved you. The sovereign creator and perfect father declares his unfailing love to his children and they respond with skepticism and doubt. How have you loved us, God? Really? God, we don't believe you were really good or loving because if you were, we wouldn't struggle like this. We wouldn't suffer like we do. Life wouldn't be so hard if you truly loved us. So how have you loved us today, God? This is the type of challenge where you'd expect thunder and lightning, right? Pillars of fire and earthquakes. Who are you, oh man? I, that's what I would expect. And they would be valid responses from an infinitely holy and powerful God. But that's not how God responds. He doesn't lash out like we so often do when our character is challenged. Instead, he points them back to the foundation of his love. God responds to their question in verse 2 saying, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Ding, ding, ding. Hate. We use the word, that's what everyone wants to talk about, the word hate. My kids aren't even allowed to say they hate stuff, right? Trouble, trouble, we'll get there. We're just not getting there yet. But I just want to recognize it so you're not like, is he really going to talk about this? Is he just going to ignore it the whole time? I'm not going to ignore it, we'll get there. But I love what God does here, maybe except for the word hate. In the last book of the Old Testament, they're asking, how have you loved us? And God says, Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis and see exactly how I have loved you. They say, how have you loved us? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? That's a weird response, right? Huh? It doesn't make as much sense to us, but what we have to realize is that the Israelites knew their Bibles and they knew their family history. They were one and the same. The Israelites were direct descendants of Jacob. And they knew that Esau wasn't just Jacob's brother, but his twin brother conceived in the womb of Rebekah by their father Isaac. And they weren't just twins. Esau was the elder brother, which meant by all customary rights and privileges, he would be the heir of the father's blessing. 
But God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau hated. And that sets off all kinds of alarms in our brains. But one important thing to realize about these two brothers is that neither of them were good dudes. Neither. It's not like Esau was sitting around carving idols for himself and Jacob was praying and worshiping God. Esau was a fool who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And Jacob was a manipulative, conniving mama's boy. At least Esau was a man's man. He was a skillful hunter. He was my kind of guy. He was out wrestling wild animals, living off the land, and Jacob's at home baking cookies. Really, he was making soup, I guess, right? He had a plan. From a worldly perspective, if anyone was going to be the father of a nation, it was Esau. But God chose this unlikely Jacob. Why? We ask lots of why questions, and oftentimes the Bible isn't super clear. But here we actually get a clear answer in Romans 9, 11 through 13. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older, older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's hard. So why did God love Jacob? Was it because he was more faithful? Was it because he loved God more? Because he looked into the future and saw that Jacob was going to be a good man? No. It had nothing to do with Jacob. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Scripture says God chose Jacob so that his purpose of election might continue. It had nothing to do with Jacob's faithfulness and everything to do with God's faithfulness. God's love for Jacob and his descendants was grace alone. You see, neither Jacob nor Esau deserved forgiveness. Neither were righteous men. But God had made a covenant, a promise to Abraham that through his offspring a deliverer would come. And our God is faithful to the end. God had a plan of redemption that would culminate in the coming of Christ. A plan to gather people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation for his glory. God chose Jacob ultimately so that his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ might continue. So that salvation would be expanded to all the earth. So the Israelites are like, how have you loved us, God? And God points all the way back to Genesis to the fulfillment of his covenantal love. They are alive because God chose to show grace to Jacob. They were a product of God's love and faithfulness for generation after generation. The Israelites are hung up on what they think they deserve as the children of God. 
And God takes, takes them back to Genesis and basically says, how exactly did you become my people? Remind me what it is that you did. Do you think that it was some great righteousness on your forefathers' parts that got you here? The only difference between Jacob and Esau was the grace of God. So Jacob received grace, but Esau, God says, I hate it. Not only that, but he continues in verse 4 saying, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And then God goes on in verse 5 to say, you're going to see all this, and you're going to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You're going to see my power and my glory and my judgment, and you're going to worship. That's hard stuff. Verses like this challenge our perception of God, but our perception sometimes needs to be challenged. It needs to be challenged. Our culture has painted God as this impotent, benign force that we come to when our life is not working out exactly how we want. We don't view him as an all-consuming fire, as he says in Deuteronomy 4.24. And so when we come to verses like this, my guess is just that most people aren't struggling with the fact that God says he loved Jacob, right? Anybody? Is there tension there? You're not trying to wrap your minds around a loving God. If you ask pretty much anyone, like off the street, Christian or not, is God love? Oh, yeah. Of course God is love. If we ask what love is, then we're going to get all kinds of answers. But we know God is it. All the excitement over this verse, all the theological debates, all the questions surrounding this verse obviously isn't about love. They're about the word hate. But Esau, I hate it. It is one of those little phrases that challenges how we view God. It challenges the, the widely accepted, culturally sensitive, tame and tempered image of God that we've kind of fabricated. We don't have a framework for a God who's capable of hate. That's not positive. That doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. And I think it's good for us just to sit with this idea of things that God might hate. What would God hate? Just as there is a righteous anger, there is a righteous hatred. But I don't think that is at all what Scripture is pointing to here. I don't think scripture is saying that God hated Esau in the way we think or use this word. I think there are some cultural and linguistic points that, that soften at least the blow of this word, not the deep theological truth behind it. So oftentimes in scripture, the terms love and hate are used in, this, in a covenantal way. They carry more the idea of being inside the covenant and out, or outside, accepted or rejected. It can, even, it can even just mean like preference. 
So this is why we can read that Jacob hated Leah in one verse. And then in another verse, we read that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Rachel was the one he favored, the one he chose. Or another verse everyone has struggled with, Jesus says that we have to hate our father and mother. What? But then later he says we must love him more than our father and mother. So I think we have to be careful not to read our understanding of hate into this text and kind of eliminate every other thing we know about God through Scripture that that is clear. I don't believe God hated Esau any more than he wants us to hate our father and mother. It is difficult wording, but I don't think it means any more than the deep, hard theological truth we find in Romans 9, that God chose Jacob, not because of anything Jacob had done or would do, but sheerly out of his grace and love to fulfill the covenant he had made with Abraham so that his purpose in election might stand. So the beautiful truth that God is describing to the bratty, entitled, grumbling Israelites is that for generations he has been working his plan of redemption. That ultimately this salvation is not just for Israel, but as his promised Abraham, all nations would be blessed through your family line. And we are the fruit of that promise. We Gentiles have now been invited into God's eternal covenantal love. Now we are loved by God because of his faithfulness and mercy to call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So I think it's pretty easy to soften the blow of the word hate. I would love to just sit and soak in God's unwavering faithfulness for the rest of our time. But since we're already in a hard text and talking about hard things, it seems like a good time to just press in a little bit deeper because often we struggle when we read about a God who judges at all in Scripture, right? We we struggle there because we love to talk about salvation. Who wouldn't? It's all over the Bible. It is a joy-filled reality. It's why Jesus came. But we don't think about the fact that you can't have salvation without judgment, right? The, The idea of salvation exists because we needed saved. We were living in condemnation. We need salvation because Scripture talks about this really politically incorrect and culturally insensitive word that most Christians don't even like to talk about. It's this word called hell. The Bible says people are going to hell. So don't get frustrated with me. I've read in the Bible this week, it says stuff like that. Jesus says people are going to go to hell. New Testament Jesus. That's the only place he shows up, really. He says that. The reason the gospel is good news is because our loving God made a way through Jesus for us to live in eternal joy with him forever. And scripture is clear. All who call upon the Lord will be saved. Which means that no one who seeks after Jesus for salvation will be rejected. 
No one. But the reality is that there are those in this life who do not want to spend eternity with Jesus, who don't believe that God exists. And Romans 1 says, these people have suppressed the truth, that the truth is plain to them through what God has created, but they have rejected it, they have suppressed it, and exchanged the truth for a lie. That's Romans 1. And our perfectly loving God is also perfectly just. He says, if we reject the free offer of salvation and life and joy through Jesus Christ, we choose hell. We choose separation from the God who we want no part of. I know talking about hell is not enjoyable. Trust me, it's not my favorite subject. Not like, hey, let's do a series on hell, right? How to wreck a church in a month, I don't know. But avoiding hard truths and, and having the power of positive thinking isn't going to save you. Only Christ will. So we have to wrestle here. Are we burdened for our neighbors? Are we burdened for our coworkers? Are we burdened for our family members who don't know Christ? Do we think about the necessity of the gospel that we cling to, that we proclaim? It is necessary, eternally necessary. Far too many professing Christians want to proclaim God's love and his mercy and his kindness, but neglect his wrath, his judgment. They convince themselves that God's wrath is this Old Testament teaching that's just not relevant anymore. We try to compartmentalize God. We tell ourselves that the God of the Old Testament was wrath God, and the God of the New Testament is love God. That's really bad theology, by the way. But listen here, this, this will blow your mind. Jesus, New Testament Jesus, right? Jesus talked more about heaven and hell, more about divine judgment and wrath and the wrath of God than he did God's love. Can you believe that? Jesus talked about fiery hell, eternal destruction, this place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth more than he talked about God's love. Because Jesus understood the problem of sin. He understood the just punishment that sin warrants. That is why he came. Jesus didn't come to add a little more flash to our already glorious righteousness. He came because we have none. He came to bear the condemnation that we deserved because his death was the only way that we could be united with the Father. Right? Man, it's got to be the worst sermon on love ever, right? What's the big deal about God's wrath anyway? Is, is it important? I would say yes, God's wrath and hell are essential to our understanding of the gospel for two reasons, probably for a lot more than two. I'm going to talk about two. First, without the wrath of God, we cannot understand his grace. God hates sin. It is an affront to his holiness. His righteousness demands perfect justice for sin. Because sin violates his holiness. 
without an understanding of God's wrath and hatred of sin, grace has no value. If we don't grasp the severity of our sin against God, if we don't understand that sin is not about breaking the rules, but trying to be our own God, trying to seek our own glory apart from him, then we cannot savor the infinite blessing of his loving kindness. Right? The whole definition, as we said, of salvation kind of breaks down if there's nothing that we're being saved from. See, Jesus is not in the business of self-improvement. He didn't come to make you a better version of yourself. He came to save you from the destruction of sin, to breathe life into death. So, first off, we can't understand the grace of God apart from his wrath. And second, without hell, we can't fully comprehend the glory and the holiness of God. Hell is this frightening indication of God's holiness. And if we deny the reality of hell or God's wrath, and we say that God is love, so he could never allow people to be punished in this way, we're essentially saying that the glory and the holiness of God are just not that big of a deal. What we're saying is hell is the wrong punishment for belittling the glory of God. That essentially, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But if we deny that hell is just punishment for sin, what we are saying is that, God, you're just not that holy. You're, you're holy, you're pretty holy, but you're not that holy. But Scripture doesn't waver on the fact that hell is what we deserve for rejecting God and making light of his holiness. So we're left with two options if we're going to question the biblical reality of hell. Either God has an overly inflated view of his own glory and holiness, or we have an overly inflated view of our own. We think that we're righteous and God is somehow mistaken. We can't have it both ways. Either God is holy and righteous and good, or we call him a liar and claim lordship over our own lives. We reject his truth and his righteousness for our own. If you think throwing scripture out the window because we don't like everything God has to say and claiming authority over our own lives is the way to go, I would urge you to reconsider. That's not going to work out well. And if you profess Christ and claim to live by faith in the God of the Bible, then we must accept the fullness of God's revelation of himself in Scripture. God is perfect in holiness and justice and love all at the same time. We don't get to pick the attributes that we like. So here is what I hope that we can take from this text. If, if we really understood the magnitude of our sin in relation to the holiness of God, we wouldn't be startled by the fact that God hated or rejected or didn't choose Esau. What would blow our minds and drive us to our knees in worship is the fact that despite our rebellion and hatred of God, he loves any of us. He saved any of us. 
We have no merit to stand before God. We were born into rebellion against God. With every prideful thought and careless word and every questionable click of the mouse and swipe of the credit card, we are claiming lordship over our own lives. We are staring God in the face and saying, I choose to love another. I don't need you. I'm going to make my way without you. Like, like the entitled Israelites complaining to God, not thinking about the fact that they can complain to God at all is because of his grace and patience. Because they were chosen and blessed and established out of all the people of the earth. And it was a purpose far larger than themselves. God's righteous wrath is the punishment for our rejection of him, for our rebellion and idolatry. But just like Jacob, God has chosen to show us grace. In his infinite love, he didn't leave us without hope, but sent his son to bear the burden of his wrath for us. Not because of our righteousness, but because of his unfailing love. Christ bore the fullness of God's wrath for us. Every sin, every doubt, every evil thought paid for by the blood of Jesus. And the incomprehensible truth of God's love for us is that it is not a response to our movement towards him. He doesn't love us because we chose him. He doesn't love us because we decided to follow him. But while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He died so that we might live. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. He bore the burden of our guilt so that we could enjoy the blessings of his perfect righteousness. Christ endured the fullness of God's wrath on the cross for us. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is amazing love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 3.10, it's clear. No one seeks God, not one. If salvation depended upon us, we would never seek him. We would never choose him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God, in all his holiness, took on flesh. He died the death we deserved so that we could dwell forever with our creator. That is the love of our Father. And we, re and we realize that, that we did nothing to earn God's love. That also means we can do nothing to lose it. 
We can proclaim Paul's words from Romans 8 with confidence. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, I just pray this week that we would slow down, that we would be still, that we would spend time just dwelling upon the lengths to which you went for our salvation. God, all aspects from the darkness of our sin to the perfect life of Jesus to his sacrifice and your surpassing love that drove all of this, God. Humble us before the truth of your word, the truth of your salvation, before the simplicity of your gospel, that we were dead, but we have been made alive in Christ. It's in your name we pray.